Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the Bethel University smorgasbord, it's Election Shock Therapy Christmas Edition. Woo-hoo. Guys, i got some egg for your nog. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It he sounds terrible, though. <laughs> we actually do have eggnog um, in the fridge behind Yeah, we do. It, so. We got eggnog. We got hot cider. What, what is your favorite seasonal uh, treat that you really only consume uh, between Thanksgiving and New Year's? Oh, so this is pretty easy. Um, my family has a dessert called Chocolate Charlotte, and it's basically kind of like a chocolate mousse with gelatin, whipped cream in it. It's really, really good. Um, it's part of the kind of D- Bramson Danish tradition, um, and I love that. And we almost only eat it then. Occasionally at Easter we'll do it too, but nice, really good. I've adopted my uh, wife's tradition. She makes this fantastic wassail recipe. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got all sorts of fruit juices in it and clove and cinnamon. So it's pretty fantastic. Now, this is a family podcast, Dr. Kukum, but I thought wassail had booze in it, no? Booze is optional. Okay. As it turns out. It is better with booze, though, I will say. But Great. you're going to have it on Bethel's campus. That's right. The option becomes a non-option. Exactly. I am actually not a huge fan of, like, Christmas-specific, um, uh, like, desserts or drinks or foods. But sure. uh, a couple of years ago, um, we started a new family tradition, which is uh, not necessarily good, but I think Andy will appreciate this, which is in the late 19th. 19- I like that. Oh, Andy's going to love it. <laughs> there's a reason that I say that, um, which will become apparent. But in the, the late 1960s, uh, the good people from Waco, Texas, who produced uh, uh, Dr. Pepper, uh, tried to convince everyone that the best holi- the, the new holiday drink is hot Dr. Pepper with oh, a slice of lemon in it. Oh, oh why? Gross. <laughs> so so we, we now do that. I didn't know. Yes, what no. Why? Because oh, <laughs> it's fun. To, it's fun to it's give awful. to people and, and they have that reaction. Yeah, we no. don't drink it because we like it. We do it because it's like, oh, we're having company over, and we can we tell them the story about how Dr Pepper marketed themselves as a hot drink, and, and then you actually make it. Yeah, they oh, make my. it for people. It's fine. I don't like hot <laughs> drinks that much. It's fine. That's such a good Minnesotan justification. It's, it's just fine. Can I ask a, a recipe question? <laughs> Absolutely. Do you boil it or do you just gently warm it? Oh, you boil it. Yeah. Does that decarbonate you, it? Like, that's what I was wondering. That's my next thought. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so but when you put the, when so you drop hot the, flat Dr Pepper with a lemon in it, <laughs> the lemon in it. Yeah. So are you not coming to my house then? Is that what I'm hearing? That sounds really. Coming to my I'm coming to your house and I'm bringing a legitimate. I'm bringing yeah. Kukum's wassail. That's what yeah, I'm bringing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bring Kukum with you to his house. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, what if we wow. what if we all showed up on Christmas wow. morning in our footy pajamas and did a podcast? From my house? Yes. That would be great. <laughs> Sam's like, as long as I don't have to leave my house, that's fine. Are you admitting that you have footy pajamas? Is that what you're saying? No, actually, in all seriousness, I would love footy pajamas, and I do not. I would say, though, yeah, I would I say, though, either. if we were looking around this room and we asked somebody most likely to own footy pajamas, it's definitely Chris Moore. Oh, it's definitely oh, yeah. Chris Moore. Yeah. Why? Come on. <laughs> you're the only one who dresses up at Halloween. <laughs> this, you're, is a, like, this is a self-evident. You're saying, you're saying I, you looked I ha- like a plant on October 31st. You're saying I, I have above a 14 on <laughs> the whimsy index? Is yes. Like, okay. yes. All right. Just a little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we're not here to talk about footy pajamas um, or wassail, although that sounds delightful. We're not right here now. to exclusively talk about those things. We're moving right. We're also here to talk about a we couple big political events. We met when we last joined you last week. Uh, we talked about two big political happenings in the Anglo-Saxon world: uh, mm-hmm. the impeachment of Donald J. Trump in the United States and the British parliamentary elections in uh, in in the United Kingdom. And we have updates on both of those things. And so this is going to be a little bit shorter than a normal podcast because we mostly mm-hmm. just want to check in on those two things and then give you some Christmas wishes at the end. So uh, we rolled the dice and we decided to go with the United States first, USA, USA. Uh, But uh, where do we stand, gentlemen, on impeachment? Well, it's likely to happen today. Um, They're debating even as we speak. I watched a little bit this afternoon, um, which was not incredibly uplifting. But (laughs) Why is uh, that? um, Because they're just saying predictable things and – 
um, talking past each other. In fact, one of the members actually made the point. He's like, we're not really debating impeachment. We've all decided how we're going to vote. And I thought, yeah, that's true. Um, so thank you for being honest. I'll give him honesty points. But, um, yeah, it just didn't feel particularly productive. Like, they they all know what they're going to do tonight. They just all have to say something for the cameras for, you know, one to five minutes um, before they do it. And we yeah. should say that it is uh, – it's currently 419 Eastern time on Wednesday. So yeah. – um, when you're listening to this, you will know right. for certain about this vote, but uh, we're anticipating it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we but, have, we, but we basically know, right, 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 right. even though, yeah, you'll know the actual, like, it'll be written in stone. So Andy doesn't believe in plot twists. I, not in this one, I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is, 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 is this a foregone conclusion? Um, it's not a foregone conclusion, sorry, that, that he's going to be impeached. The House is going to pass an article, two articles of impeachment. And send. Um, so he'll be impeached. He'll be impeached. By the House, right? But then, and then the Senate will hold a trial. Right. And we've had a very. I mean, we, this has been somewhat different in a couple of key ways than the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And there have been uh, three impeachments in uh, in American history. This is the third one. I'm, I'm presuming this is going to happen also. And this is very different from the one that's historically contemporaneous. We really can't draw as nearly as much information from the Johnson impeachment just because it occurs so long mm-hmm. ago. What is why, why does this stand out to you as such a different process than um, the impeachment of Bill Clinton? Well, I guess I want to push you on that. Why do you think it's so different? Well, I would say it's different in a couple of ways. Let me, let me actually carve out a space for that. And that's, and that's fair, I should say. On the one um, – in, in the first order – there was a lot of cooperation between Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats uh, to sure. conduct the trial itself during uh, Clinton's impeachment. Um, right. Tom Daschle and Her- um, Trent Lott right. uh, did a fair amount of, of bipartisan agreements on how to sort of uphold the dignity of the Senate right. when they conducted the trial and to – a, a number of the para- the rules based parameters mm-hmm. of the of the of the impeachment of Clinton were handled very cooperatively between the two parties in the Senate um, back in 1998, mm-hmm. and that's not happening this time. Yeah. Uh, McConnell has yeah. basically thumbed his nose at Chuck Schumer. Schumer mm-hmm. wants to call additional witnesses to the uh, to the proceedings in the Although, Senate. I mean, to to interrupt, to be fair, I mean, Schumer is asking for the Senate Republicans to take up the mantle of calling extra witnesses, which they could have called in the House if they wanted. Yes, right? Right. correct. So his demand on this particular score is not exactly in good faith. I no, no, no. I, I completely agree so there, with you. So I agree with you. There's a lack of cooperation no, I'm, between I'm just, the two. I'm just sketching out the differences yeah. here. Um, yeah. And I, I want to get to where that's coming from. Yeah. Uh, can I ask the three of you who are probably more familiar with the ins and outs of the mm-hmm. U.S. Constitution? Uh, what I, I know that it probably doesn't say a lot. What does it say about what this process should look like at this point? It's, or does it just say there is a trial in the Senate? It says very little. It says very that little. for the president to be removed once he's impeached, the Senate has to vote by two-thirds majority to remove him. Yep. And the chief justice of the Supreme Court presides over the trial. And that's about it. Okay. Yep. Yep. So the Senate yep. – um, historically, when it does have an impeachment trial, it basically uses um, its own um, internal procedures to set the rules for that particular trial. Um, so right. what you'll see is um, at some point McConnell and Republican leadership will float some sort of resolution which establishes the rules for how this particular trial is going to be conducted. We'll see how much mm-hmm. that varies from what has been the historic norm, not that we have a very large end on that point. Um, but then those rules only have to pass by 51 votes. What does the word trial mean? So the Senate, um, so if you back up, the House sort of serves um, like like a grand jury. They mm-hmm. consider the evidence. Mm-hmm. And if they consider that there is sufficient evidence um, to um, potentially remove a president, then they kick it to the Senate, which acts as the sort of normal trial jury that then considers that body of evidence and whether or not that is grounds for removal. So it's it's um, right. it's a it's called a trial. Okay, yeah. but and, and then you only have to have two thirds. Semi judicial, but it's right. but it's also political. Right. Well, I'm, what I, I guess the question I'm getting at is, um, could they just could this whole process just be they just have a vote, or does there have to be something we would call a trial? And, and that's well, that, that, that's, that's a good question. Right. That's a good question because McConnell has seemed to suggest almost that you could just you could just dismiss this as. Illegitimate. I mean, kind of the equivalent of a judge throwing something out of court as this is there's, this is groundless, right? 
Um, yeah, I mean, so um, there's even some question as to whether or not the Senate has to take up right. um, the um, the articles of impeachment from the House, but that's something they will do. But the Constitution is really vague on this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, which I, I think is and and the other I mean another difference we should note between now and and the Clinton process right was that when Bill Clinton was impeached um, by the House and then subsequently um, not removed by the Senate, um, the Republicans control both. House and Senate. And that is right. not the case in this instance right. where the Democrats are the ones controlling the House um, and pushing this and the Republicans control the Senate. And so that's when you think about like that, that kind of contentiousness, um, that's that's part of it, too, is that there's, you know, there's these different kind of people driving the process in the two bodies. Do you so, do you remember what the, the Clinton vote was? I mean, they didn't get the two thirds, but you said it was Republican controlled Senate. It wasn't particularly close. It was um, I think that I think the clo- most votes they got for an article was did they reach 50%? 50? On yeah, they okay. got 50. I can okay. look it up, but it was around 50. Because okay. um, some Republicans didn't even vote for it. I don't think okay. any Democrats voted for right. it. So it wasn't that close. So here's kind of what I'm getting towards is as we think about this in comparison to Clinton, there's two things that, that buck us making these a, a useful comparison, although we have to because mm-hmm. these are the only two yep. modern cases of where they've actually gone through the impeachment process. One is that Clinton and Trump are accused of just different things. Right. They've done different things. They've Clinton was accused of lying under oath and obstructing Congress. In that way, I guess it's similar to Trump because Trump is mm-hmm. also being charged with obstruction right. of Congress. Yep. Uh, but he's not being accused of lying under oath. He's being accused of, of abuse of power and, and uh, something and, and, and sort of his call with you, uh, Ukrainian president. But the other thing that as an explanation besides just, well, these are just different issues is can a lot of this be explained by the polarization of Congress? We tend to think of those late 90s years as being very rancorous, right? Mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich, Trent Lott was not a softy, <laughs> right. and and, right. uh, and, and um, uh, neither were his opponents in, in the Senate. But the fact that they were able to reach sort of bipartisan agreement on what – how the Senate trial should be conducted, which um, Schumer and McConnell are not able to do at all, is this just – polarization or is there something else going on here besides just that sort of simple explanation? Yeah, I think polarization has the most explanatory power and probably yeah. sums up the, the majority yeah. of the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you if you just look at data on, you know, the frequency with which Democrats and Republicans vote with each other mm-hmm. or cross the aisle on major pieces of legislation, that right. has been tanking since the 90s. Um, and so I think this is um, like you said, part of the, the broader polarization story. Mm-hmm. And I think you can that um, that is mirrored in um, the electorate and what in public opinion. Right. Yeah. Public is split starkly uh, along partisan lines on the impeachment question as well. Yep. And just to, I mean, to illustrate that. So on the, the vote with Clinton, you know, 20 years ago, um, it was to follow up on Sam's question, 55 voting no, 45 yes on one article and then 50-50 on the other. So they, most votes they got for either of the two articles they put forward on Clinton was 50. But they, what's interesting is Republicans actually had 55 seats in the Senate, right? So you had five sen- Republican senators on one of the articles and 10 on the other voting against the articles of impeachment passed by the Republican mm-hmm. majority House, right? So, um, you know, I don't expect that level of partisan um, kind of breaking with their group this time, right? I think the Democrats are going to be pretty united around the articles of impeachment and the Republicans are going to be pretty united ag- against them. I mean, there might be one or two exceptions in the House, like Colin Peterson from Minnesota, who's pretty conservative for his party. Um, in the Senate, I would expect a pretty near straight line party vote. Um, there might be a couple Republicans who break, but I doubt it. Um, and Democrats, I'd be very surprised to see a break. Okay, I want to unpack that a little bit because we, 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 we ch- you guys pretty comfortably chalked it up to polarization. Yep. But there's a couple of ways to think about how polarization affects electoral mm-hmm. prospects. Mm-hmm. And if that's what members of Congress really care about, then one can imagine a, um, a member of Congress saying, well, yes, the country is very polarized mm-hmm. and people either love Donald Trump or they hate him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still know that there are a lot of political moderates who might be voting for me. Mm-hmm. And I have an interest in acting as a political moderate. Maybe I would say behind the scenes as a Republican, I would never vote to remove Donald Trump from office. I'm never going to vote to remove a Republican president, period. But I'm going to act like I'm going to give him a fair hearing Mm -hmm. because I think that I need to uphold the dignity of the Senate. And I think that I want to um, I want to appear to be moderate and even minded. And I can imagine that's what Trent Lott and um, uh, 
um, I'm blanking on the Democratic leader. Tom, Daschle. Said, uh, Tom Daschle said yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a few, you know, a few decades ago. But now we're, we're really having basically like Lindsey Graham, yeah. Mitch McConnell saying, under no circumstances would I ever consider voting for to remove Donald Trump. Right. And you also had people right. like Elizabeth Warren who's who was saying, yep. I would vote for impeachment before I even heard the results of the mm-hmm. investigation. Yeah. So this is on yeah. both sides. Have we have they just decided that it's not even strategic to give the appearance of moderation? Should we just reward them for being honest, I guess? <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is you have to think about, you know, which election is coming first, the general election or the primary elections. Right. The primaries mm-hmm. are coming first and we're we are basically um, mm-hmm. about ready to have a series of primary elections in the next few months. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that is one of the reasons why you have a lot of Republicans and Democrats sort of falling down along partisan lines because they are in danger of getting primaried um, Uh, by people um, because the people who tend to vote in primary elections are people who are more ideological, who are Mm -hmm. more partisan, Mm -hmm. and they will punish um, people within their party um, for not basically falling down, basically following the party on on certain issues. And this is strictly a partisan issue. Um, and so I think yeah. that is one of the driving forces behind this, including yeah. including a lot of there's like 30, 31 moderate Democrats in the House of Representatives um, who basically you know, when they ran their campaigns, they ran their campaigns on, you know, working with Trump on certain yep. issues yep. and was reaching across party lines. But but they know that if they vote um, against impeach, impeachment, they're going to get primaried um, mm-hmm. this upcoming yeah. spring. And that's a that's a riskier proposition um, than actually voting for impeachment at this point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that I mean, when you think back to the, again the kind of Clinton comparison, um, purity testing has just gotten way way worse, right? In, in Can you explain what purity years. testing is? Um, in other words, the parties are saying you have you have to be with us not just a lot of the time, more often than not, right? That you you lean Republican or you lean Democrat, and, you're, and therefore that's why you're with the party. But you have to be pure. You have to be with us on all major issues and mm. and frankly increasingly more issues are being defined as major right I mean, even you know the the kind of what you can disagree about is um it just seems to be kind of that that seems to be getting less and less right what, what you're allowed to disagree about um and if you're not doing that then you need to be primary you need to be kicked out we need to replace you with somebody who's pure and it gets i mean and in both parties this gets there becomes a real element of kind of delusionality, if I can put it that way, right? I mean, like, so for example, I mean, I was looking at a story about Colin Peterson, who's a conservative Democrat from Western Minnesota. He represents a district that when Colin Peterson retires will almost certainly become a Republican district um, because his constituents are much more conservative than the National Democratic Party. But because Peterson is a different kind of Democrat, he's able to win that district and has held it now for about three decades, right? Um, And people are saying, we need to primary this guy. He's not with us on impeachment, right? Let's get him out of there. I'm like, you do understand if you primary him and put in a liberal Democrat, that will become a Republican seat, right? Right. That's what will happen. And it reminded me of, you know, 10 years ago when the Republicans did this in Delaware, right? Where it's like, Mike Castle is too squishy. He's a Republican in name only. We need a pure conservative, right? And so they put in this, you know, Christine O'Donnell, right? Who then produces absolutely- (laughs) not a witch. Who is not a witch, apparently. She had ran an ad clarifying that point. But um, but it got obliterated, as you might expect, in the in the general election because Delaware, it turns out, is not a conservative state, mm-hmm. right? And that's not exactly a surprise. So she gets roundly beaten, which was very predictable um, because Castle was the only kind of Republican who was likely to win in Delaware and might well have won that seat for the Republicans. So you're you're getting this kind of we want we only want people with us who are pure. Um, and and that means that there's very little kind of crossover between the parties, right? There's just like you have conservatives on the right, you have liberals on the left, and there's less and less space for them to agree and work together, which makes it, kind of coming back to your point, it makes it not that surprising in a way that it's hard for a Schumer and a uh, um, Mitch McConnell to work together well. Um, They have less and less incentive to do so. Um, In this regard, then, both sides are accusing the others of a sham. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democrats yep. are accusing the Republicans of setting up a sham of a of a trial yep. in the Senate, and the Republicans in the Senate have cried, "Well, you already did a sham in the House. We're just yep. fixing your problem that you yep. manufactured." Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you guys to be pundits, but as we as historians look back on this episode, will either of those claims of shamakery? Um, be uh, viewed as more or less legitimate? Do we have a sense of that? It depends on how far in the future these historians are writing. I think in four years, historians will basically 
themselves fall along partisan lines and how okay. they write yeah. about this particular. Yeah. Sorry to the historian here, but, no, you're right. but I think yeah. historians that's the you know, problem write with recent their, history, right? Yeah, they, right. they write from their right. perspective. So I would be interested in seeing what do historians say 50 years from now, but eh, remains to be seen. Yeah, okay. I, I think it's, I agree. I think it's really hard to call at this point. Um, Could, sort of instant history is hard to do it well at all. Donald Trump wrote a six page. Um, <laughs> letter to Nancy Pelosi, which I could only describe as vitriolic, and said that the House Democrats were uh, launching a coup, an unconstitutional coup against the White House, um, which as a scholar of international relations, someone who's studied and written a little bit on coups, um, (laughs) is frustrating. It's not a coup. Um, It's not a coup. Um, But that said, is... This process, because it is so starkly partisan and so polarized, going to do something that Donald Trump actually wished for. He wrote in a tweet today, I hope that no president has to ever endure this again. Will he get his wish? Is impeachment dead as a constitutional possibility? I don't think it's dead. I mean, I just it depends on what you mean, I guess, by it being dead. In one sense, it might be more alive than ever. It mm. might become more... Um, you know, they might be quicker to go to it, right? You say, well, so see, just, look at those people. As soon as Congress doesn't trivially. line up with the par- president's party, yeah, yeah, and it might be get pushed by by people who are opposed to the president. But if you mean by impeachment, impeachment and removal, um, I think it's going to get very difficult unless, again, you get a weird situation where you have a president of one party and a two thirds majority of the other, which what doesn't seem like we're particularly close to having that situation anytime soon. So, yeah, right. that's going to be really hard to get that sort of scenario yeah. in place where you know one yeah. party soundly controls both the House and the Senate yeah. but loses the White House. Right. right. That's that's yeah. a pretty unusual scenario. But that's right. what it would take. But given but given those strictures that you guys just described, could we is it's hard to imagine that impeachment ever becomes a live option for uh for most um most of the time in, in US government. Yeah, I mean but I think the the, the X factor here is what if the president lost the support of his own party because he was too unpopular, because he was too much of a liability, right? And that's but, where but, but what I'm suggesting, Andy, is that seems increasingly less likely to happen. Or that seems... Uh, well, yes, but I'll say... And this is like... I've said this before in this podcast a number of times. I think the X factor is what if his his um, or her, you know, approval ratings drop too low, right? If they okay. drop too low and this person became seen as an electoral liability... And you're better off getting rid of that person than maybe you think about it, right? I mean, which is, in right. some ways, what, what I mean, one of the ways to explain what was happening with Nixon, right? Mm-hmm. It just got too expensive to to keep him, and so eventually you turn. The so problem for Trump is that I mean, like with Trump, is that has not happened. It was, didn't come close to happening with Clinton either. Um, so you know, it would be really interesting if all of a sudden his, you know, if his his numbers drop by fifteen percent, right? Then what do Republicans do? And then I, I can imagine some different backroom conversations right. going on. But. Okay, so let me let me play that out. And here's where I think I'm, I'm disagreeing with you just a little bit. Sure. Which is that we when we started this whole conversation about impeachment, and we said mm-hmm. that for the impeachment to really start to become a live – I'm sorry, not just impeachment, but removal from removal, office. Right, right. To become a live yep. possibility, his approval ratings would have to go from the um, mi- uh, mid-40s, high-40s that they're at right now down to like the th- like the, like the the low 30s, right? Or maybe even the 20s. And yeah. It got into like yeah. 35. To th- what we initially said, though, we yeah, said 30s, the low yeah. 30s. And I no longer think that that's true mm-hmm. um, because of the reasons you guys just described that uh, members of Congress are worried about getting uh, um, primaried from their flanks Yep, and that – Partisanship means that elections are more about turning out your base than, yep. than appealing to yep. moderate voters. I'm not sure the president, even in the, at the 25 percent approval rating, would uh, see a huge percentage of their own party turn on them. You have to get somebody who is absolutely reviled by the vast majority mm-hmm. of Americans mm-hmm. before you see their own party turn on them because the costs to the individual right. members are so high. Yep. Um, and I think – be- because of that, the chances that we get a president who has a disapproval rating north of seventy-five percent is just vanishingly small. It also depends yeah. on where that where that twenty-five percent of yeah. un, you know staunch right. 
approval is distributed and how it's distri- distributed across particular states, right? right. Because sure. it's, it's the states which are like the senators, which are you know, right. ultimately in control whether yeah. or not the president's removed. Right. So you can imagine a situation right. um, in which that number doesn't have to get down to 25%, right. um, depending on how that right. how that's distributed. Right. I mean, for example, the president retains his popularity, you know, if it's Republican in the South, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still at like, say, 45% there, but elsewhere it's 30% almost across the board. Um, you could see Republican senators in other places having incentives to turn on the president. And again, you don't have to get all of them, right? I mean, right. like in the current Senate, for example, you'd have to have 20 out of 47 or 20 out of 53 Republicans um, to impeach the, and remove this president. Um, that's a big number, right? It's a mm-hmm. substantial number, but it's not everybody. And I think that's important to know. You could still have some people saying, you know what? In my state, my calculation is we have to get rid of this guy. And what you would need is enough of them to be band together and give each other cover, right? And start saying like, can you win Iowa with this president, right? Can you win uh, Minnesota if you get, get a Republican from here again, right, or something like that? Can you win Wisconsin? And if enough of them start saying, no, we need to turn, right, and they do it together, yeah. you could imagine that scenario. I mean, I don't think, again, I don't think it's likely. I think you're right. But, right. And but in it's some ways possible. it's going to be easier for, like, five or 10 or 20 senators to break yeah. together than for th- yeah. two or three. I mean, there's kind right. of a safety Absolutely. in numbers. Like Absolutely. once you get a critical mass, right. then you could say, is like, there, well, I'm is not there the a tipping one. point critical mass of like, like what would, and, and that's yeah. speculative, but like, I mean, it depends on the, probably which yeah. states are involved. Sure. I mean, I would right. say once you get four or five, um, then you can say like, yeah. Hey, I'm not the only yeah. one who's going out on a limb here. Mm-hmm. Um, the other really weird thing about this this impeachment too is that this president is eligible for re-election. And I think that right. that matters here. Like I think sure. that, that I this think. would have been interesting to try in for the Democrats in a second Trump term, right? And I'm not sure they can do it again um, if this fails, and I expect it will um, ultimately, right? In terms of like removing him, so. Yeah, that would have been interesting because then the Republicans, too, might start thinking, like, if his numbers decline, I'm just not sure they have to decline as much because the pre- a, a second-term president is much less of a kind of potent threat. A president who's up for re-election next year is a much more sure. dangerous person to oppose. Well, what's been weird about this impeachment process, in addition to everything we've described mm-hmm. so far, is that we've actually seen a burst <clears throat> of bipartisan agreement outside yes. of the impeachment process. Yeah. Um, two key things happened just in the last couple of days, even as this impeachment is moving inexorably forward. First, <clears throat> the uh, Congress agreed on a rather large budget bill yep. that will fund the government all the way through next September. Mm-hmm. So, um, And they expect the White House to sign this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they sides, can all agree on spending money. They can all agree on spending uh, $1.4 <laughs> oh, trillion, dollars, uh, which is a lot. It's what uh, they call real money. It yeah. is real money. And it does some things for both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it extends um, funding for historically black colleges and universities. It um, provides 12 weeks of uh, paid parental leave to members of the military, mm-hmm. something they did not previously have. And it gives um, Donald Trump some funding for uh, border wall construction. He had asked for uh, $8.5 billion, I believe. He got $1.5 billion, so, which is not nothing, right. uh, but not nearly what he wanted. So that is a little bit of a retreat on that particular mm-hmm. issue. But the White House has already issued a statement saying they can rearrange other things in the budget to pay for the wall construction that they want to do. So take that, Congress. Um but there's a lot of money being splashed around here. Yeah. Uh, did the does the impeachment play a role in this? Or are these exo- are these separate processes entirely? I mean, budget budgets are weird because sometimes they all get together and they say like, well, everyone gets what they want, and so we're just going to spend a lot. Um, so you get that. And you sometimes get these these government shuts shutdowns over particular mm-hmm. policy issues. But this is a 2019 effect, Matt. Is this the kind of thing where um, they don't want to repeat what they did? They, last they all want to. They all want to run for re-election in twenty twenty, saying that they got some money for their for their districts, yeah. and so. <laughs> I think the more interesting thing that happened was um, the um, sort of the announcement in the House that um, the House is going to basically pass through um, the replacement for NAFTA. So yes, the, the USMCA, USMCA, right, mm-hmm. which is uh, supposed to be a, um, a couple of trade agreements with right. Canada and Mexico, the United States. And it's interesting that Pelosi um, basically announced that there would be support for this bill in the House and that they would that they would pass it basically exactly at the same time that the House Judiciary Committee um, actually published their two articles of impeachment. Um, so, which is weird um, to be um, indicating you're going to impeach a president, but you 
fully expect that he's not going to be removed because you're actually signing um, an right, agreement right, um, right. that he basically brokered, right? Um, right. So, I, which I think is just fascinating. And I, I think one of the reasons, perhaps, and I'm not the only one saying this, but one of the reasons Pelosi is doing this is she knows she has to give something to her moderate um, Democrats, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to the Democrats that are in these Trumpy districts, mm-hmm. um, because they have to be able to go home and say, hey, I worked with Trump. Um, I, I got something done because, let's face it, the House has gotten very little done and right. not done much to work with Trump in the past couple of years. And she has to basically throw them a bone because they're going to have to fall in line ultimately mm-hmm. with voting for impeachment. Um, she's you know, they're in a very tough spot. You get these House Democrats that are going home and they're in these town halls and the town halls are split. There's people, you know, wanting them to vote for impeachment and there's people mm-hmm. wanting them to vote against. And so. They have to have something that they can go back to their districts with. And so I think that's one of the reasons why Trump is getting this this particular legislative victory. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we tend to it, it might be he might not have this victory if there wasn't impeachment is one way to put that's it. That's interesting. So. Yeah, we go, we um, we as political scientists don't go into our classes or on this podcast sort of blowing partisan horns mm-hmm. uh, rooting for one side or the other. Um I'm curious, though, if there are structural differences between the Republicans and the Democrats on this issue. Um, specifically, what I mean by this is Pelosi made the strategic calculation to uh, sign up or to, to have the Democrats support a really big spending bill, which gave mm-hmm. the Republicans some of the things they wanted, right. including Trump, some of the things he wanted, and, and gave the Democrats some of the things they wanted, too. Also, they signed off on us Munka, um, uh, the USMCA. <laughs> that's that's going to catch on. Oh, I'm not the yeah. only one saying that. Uh, the USMCA. And so for, I think for, you're right, for moderates uh, to help get um, right. help them in their own reelection chances. In contrast, when Obama was president, McConnell made the choice to basically vote no on anything Obama supported and to yeah. really stonewall Mm-hmm. Uh, any of any of Obama's initiatives, which did lead to some government shutdowns mm-hmm. as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I think that was Nancy Pelosi's sort of original strategy going in um, okay. into the the you know Trump's first term was to sort of stonewall and not give him legislative victories because you know you hand you know Obama you know a bill right Obama's going to get the or not Obama Trump is going to get the credit either one. either gonna, one he's going <laughs> to well, yeah that's true. The but he's going to he's right. going to take a victory lap right, um, right. and. Mm-hmm. And that's something that he can he can plug when he yep. goes back on the campaign trail. Yep. Um, okay. So I think that was her original goal. But I think given the tough spots some of her caucus is in, she has right. to give them something. So Democrats right. surged uh, into uh, control of the House in 2018. What you're suggesting is a number of those seats they picked up are places where they're vulnerable and yeah. places mm-hmm. where they essentially yeah. – they don't have the kind of coalition that maybe McConnell had in the Senate – during Obama's uh, last term, uh, where he could right. just sort of mm-hmm. shut down anything Obama wanted to do. Right. She's got to, structurally, she has a different kind of coalition. And I know we're talking about House versus mm-hmm. Senate, too. Yeah. Right. Um, right. We have to re- she, has to, she has to allow them to reach out to more moderate voters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if some of these, I mean, they're, it's, it's rolling the dice, man, because you have some of these you know, Democrats that won in, in seats that Trump won by right. double digits that are saying, right. I'm voting to impeach Trump. Um, they'll get primaried if they don't do that, <laughs> but, yeah. but they're going to have to be able to go back and explain that starting this summer, explain that to their, right. you know, their general election constituencies and explain why they did that. And if they can say, you know, I voted to impeach him because I voted my conscience, but I did try to work with him where I, where I could, maybe that's going to allow them to eke out a victory. I don't yep. know. But um, yeah. Pelosi has a, a fragile coalition, um, yeah. and impeachment might actually, might actually, um, Bring some harm to that. So they got we'll impeachment see. for the primary and the USMCA for the general, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Well, speaking of coalitions yep. that are significantly less fragile, yep. how's that for a transition, guys? Ooh. Nice. Uh, well, let's played. talk less about fragile than it was. Let's anyway. talk yeah. about Bojo and the Bojo. Tories. Yeah. Well, they won um, a big victory. Bojo and the Tories, by the way, the, like opening, the opening act for my band. Yes. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, uh, Professor Bramson, yes. um, how did Boris Johnson do in those na- those nasty parliamentary elections over he the UK? He had a good night. He had he a, had a good real night. good night. Um, so it turned out the exit polls were quite accurate. We were having a party up here watching them for an hour and a half, basically. They talked nothing but exit polls because they had no actual results. And yeah, they basically kept amazing. calling more and more people on 
like, let's bring this guy on to talk about exit polls. Um, but having said that, they did actually do a pretty good job with their exit polls. Um, they predicted, I think, 368 seats in the initial exit poll for the conservatives, and they ended up with 365. Um, so big, big majority uh, for Johnson. That's a big increase. Is there a British Nate Silver out there? Um, what's that? Is there a British um, Nate Silver? It British might Nate be Silver. Nate Silver. Nate, <laughs> Nate Silver himself does cover the Brits a little bit. But it's so, Nathaniel Silver. Uh, Nathaniel Silver. Sir Nathaniel Silver. Yes, indeed. Quite. <laughs> um, so... So they, it was a good night for the conservatives, a really bad night for labor. They dropped to their kind of worst vote, sh- or worst, worst seat total since like the 30s, I think. Um, so really, really a rough night for them. I think one of the big takeaways there was that people just couldn't see Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister, and he's going to be um, on his way out as Labor Party leader, not, ex- not surprisingly. So big majority for conservatives, they should have a pretty free hand in negotiating Brexit. Um, and they've made that their top commitment. Um, so we should expect to see some version of Britain out of the European Union by end of January, unless they're going to look really um, ridiculous. The other, I, I think, my my other big takeaway from this election is um, the Scottish National Party did Nationalist Party did really well. Um, they won about eighty percent of the seats in Scotland. Um, they are pushing hard for another referendum to leave um, the United Kingdom. Um, they had one just five years ago. They voted against it at the time, but then they also voted overwhelmingly against Brexit, and that ha- is happening anyway. Um, and so they're saying, you know, we kind of thought we were staying in the United Kingdom and staying in Europe, and now um, these are two separate things, and we want to reconsider. And so we'll see how that goes. Johnson's been very opposed to that. Yeah, say Boris Johnson yeah. has to agree to a referendum yeah. because essentially London has to – Yep. As a v- for it to validate. be binding, right? Yeah. And, that, and the Scots have said, we don't want to do a kind of Catalonia and hold a referendum without approval by the central government. Right. Um, so, which I think is wise. I mean, like, otherwise you're setting yourself up for a big disaster. So. Exactly. Um, but the Scots are really ticked. I mean, they've been ticked ever since the Brexit vote in 2016. And we should not expect their yelling to die down at all. Well, the Scots have no. been ticked for about 500 years. Well, there's that, too. But anyway. <laughs> they've been even more ticked. <laughs> but yes, that is. <laughs> miffed, even. That's true. Maybe even miffed. Yes. Miffed. So um, I don't know. They liked it when James was in. He was Scott. Well, you know, yeah. but, but then he kind of so. didn't do all they hoped. All right, humanities guys. I'm going to rein you back in here. Yeah, um, <laughs> there are several forms that Brexit could take. Uh, a crash out would basically yep. mean that the UK could not come to an agreement yep. uh, with the European Union and they left under yep. very disastrous terms. Is it fair to say that with this uh, new conservative majority, a crash out is, is much less likely? Um. I think they'll make some kind of deal with Europe. So I think, yeah, it's okay. less likely. But on the other hand, Europe knows they are deeply committed to going and they have an incentive to make this, mm. you know, to make some deal, but it, they don't have to give them whatever they want. No. But um, Theresa May, they know that he's pretty committed to leaving. So. Theresa May, as a conservative, worked really hard to negotiate a deal that the EU ministers signed off on. Yep. Is there some chance that Boris Johnson brings back some version of that deal? Yeah, or the version he 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 had last fall too. Right, I mean, I which think, was very yeah. close to what May was was yeah. proposing. So I think we'll get something similar yeah. to that. Okay, most likely. Um, and, but, he'll be, and he'll be able to get through now because he has a larger. And, majority. Yeah, he has a bigger majority. He should be able to get it through now. Um, but you're still going to have a lot of unhappiness, especially from the Scots and then from the Northern Irish as well. So, can I ask you to speculate um, as not just a political scientist, but also Ooh. as our tour director? For um, <laughs> I thought that was Mulberry. <laughs> um, well, maybe this is for Mulberry, but uh, especially uh, thinking about hey, how one this of might, us leads to how this might affect our, our listeners. Yep. Once the United Kingdom begins the process of leaving yep. the European Union in a formal kind of way, they leave the common market, um, which means that they they go off of the EU, they revert mm-hmm. back to the pound sterling. Uh, which they never had left. Well, they still have anyway. that. Yeah, yeah so they had a special agreement sense. with the European Union to retain yep. the pound sterling. But also, you'd start issuing UK passports again. Uh, mm-hmm. They wouldn't be issuing European Union passports. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there other kinds of things that might affect people's uh, summer vacations to Europe? I don't know. Do you, I mean, Sam, do you have a sense of this? I don't have a sense that this will change all that much for your average tourist. I'm not sure, I, I, and I don't know enough about economics to know what it will do to the. The value of the pound. right. I mean that that that's, me, that's actually the biggest thing, and um, that's an unknown, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know when the initial Brexit vote happened, it was right before we went to Europe a few years ago, and uh, it was great for us because <laughs> the, the the value of the pound dropped, and uh, all of a sudden yeah. our travel and our the dollar went a lot further there. But right, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 will be the big thing, but that's an unknown. That would be my totally hunch. Is, I'm not an yeah. economist all, either, but moving from a relatively strong euro. To a to a to a more volatile pound sterling would suggest to me that 
the value of the pound could drop, which would be advantageous for Americans looking to travel and, and visit the U.S. I don't know. It might, it might drop. I mean, it could go the other way, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Part I of it know. is like once some of the big the big you know aspects of these trade deals you know yeah. between you know the UK and the EU or various European countries go through then you get certainty um, and and having certainty yeah. is really what what you know investors and corporations yeah. want um, and they will start investing once that certainty right, um, right. is locked in and that's what's going to drive up the pound. you know that's a really good point because um, one thing to keep in mind is that we've been talking and talking and talking about brexit but once brexit even occurs that's just the starting point right. because what will follow from Brexit is a long series of negotiations between the United Kingdom and the European Union over the kinds of trade deals that were assumed as part of the European Union. Yep. Right. And yep. so um, the, the effects of Brexit right. will reverberate in Britain for a decade. Oh, yeah, because right. it's not just – I mean it's not just negotiating with Europe, right? It's also negotiating with the United States. It's negotiating with Asian countries. I mean all these places where their, their trade deal was bound up is – because they were part of the EU, right? And now it's like you have to now re renegotiate private trade deals or you know one-on-one -on -one trade deals with these right. countries. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. going to be a ongoing debate. And some of that will be affected by what sorts of agreement they what right. the kind of agreement they initially sure. come to sure. with the, the EU. Yep. How extensive that is. Yep. Well, countries say like the United States, for example, mm -hmm. have any kind of incentive to offer Britain the same deal they were getting as, as a EU member? Or will we look at this as an opportunity to beggar thy neighbor and extract a tougher bargain from Britain now they longer have the negotiating power of France and Germany backing them up? Well, historically, I mean, the U.S. Mm -hmm. has been, I mean, I'll defer to you in this, Bramson, but pretty friendly yeah. with Great Britain specifically yeah. on yeah. trade, yeah. Um, like most other things, <laughs> yeah. just because of our sort of cultural, um, historical ties. Yeah. You know, if this was... If this was France or this was Germany, yeah, it'd be very different. But with right. the UK, I don't think, I don't foresee either a Democrat or Republican President Trump or, or yeah. trying to extract some sort of advantage out of Great Britain. I could be wrong. But. I'd, be, I'd, yeah, I agree. No, I agree with that. I'd, I'd be surprised. Nothing I think, crushing. I think some of the other countries they have to negotiate with. Yeah, maybe right. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe China thinks about like, oh, you're not in as strong a position as you were, right? Mm -hmm. um, that I could see happening. Mm -hmm. I would be surprised if we did that. Okay. Um, I mean. You know, not that we're not realist in our foreign policy. Often we are, but but we have had a, a very a kind of soft spot for the British, and I I think that continues, and I think that's that's not likely to be too affected by even kind of what our election results are next year. Okay. So so I have a question, um, maybe more for Bramson, but uh -oh. maybe also for you, Chris. <laughs> um, so like, what what do you all think um, this election means, sort of in the broader scheme of things historically? I mean, is this the British election? Yeah. Is yeah. this you know merely a uh, referendum on Corbyn or a rejection of of Corbyn and his you know sort of toxic uh, personality, or or is there something more fundamental going on? Um, you know, to, to pick up on our sort of populist sort of um, yeah. question uh, that we had in the last podcast. Is there some mm -hmm. other rejection of, of Corbyn's policies um, and or perhaps a support for a uh, more populist yeah. sort of or democratic um, approach um, that that a lot of voters in, in uh, Great Britain want Great Britain to take? Well, I'll offer two takes and see what you think, Chris. Sure. Um, one is, yeah, I do think this is a rejection of Corbyn. I think it's a rejection of labor lurching to the left, becoming captive of the kind of extreme wing of their party. Um, this has been a bad strategy for them down through time, right, where they become kind of captive to um, just sort of the, the extreme agenda within their party, the kind of more of the socialist wing, um, as opposed to kind of more of the center-left approach, mm -hmm. right? And so when they've had a center-left approach under people like Tony Blair, right, they've been much more successful at the ballot box. When they tried something like this in the 80s with Michael Foote, this failed. Um, and in their earlier history, they were kind of an extreme socialist party, and that that wasn't very successful either, right? So um, I think this is a rejection of that of kind of that failure to really produce a governing agenda and a, a sense that this could be a government for Britain, right, and not just a government mm -hmm. captive of kind of left-wing interests. Um, I also think the other big voting issue in this election was Brexit. I mean, there, there didn't seem to be any good way out of this, right? You mm -hmm. you have voted for Brexit. The government is 
taking as an article of faith that we have to respect the people's will, even though it's only like 51.9 percent, right, um, that we have to respect their will to exit. And so you need somebody who can try to exit. And and the conservatives were the only ones really saying yeah. we're going to take you know Britain out, and we have a clear path. Everyone else was going to kind of let's go back and vote again, or or like let's think about how to do this. And it well, just seems like after three weird. and a half years, we have to do it, right? So because I think because all was, the parties said, well, we will abide by the yeah. election results, yep. um, and then yep. you know all but the conservatives yep. walked that back. Yeah. Right? So it it, so. it felt like one of those situations where a lot of people were looking at the same like, what is the what is the other option, right, um, for for Britain going forward? So I don't know that this is some sort of like overall great affirmation of the conservative governing vision. But on this particular election, for those two reasons, they did seem kind of the obvious choice if you wanted Britain to be governed um, in the next few years. But I don't know what that will tell us about 2024, which yeah. is when their next election would normally be scheduled. I'm going to tweak that a little bit. I think I agree with you broadly. But if we think about the United States as parallel, Oftentimes, when we see, when we look back in history, we we see the electors, and we and history is written through the eyes of the victors. Yep. And we, we mm-hmm. also write history from our view of, of victorious parties too. Yep. Dukakis was a really terrible candidate for for Democrats. Yes. <laughs> and we don't really think about Michael Dukakis's role in losing um, eighty eight. We think about George H W Bush as continuing the legacy of Reagan. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we tend not to think about the relatively poor candidate that Bob Dole was in uh, mm-hmm. um, in 96, but we think about Bill Clinton building on sort right, of this right. new left legacy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that Corbyn's role in this will recede over time. And people will remember, mm-hmm. for better or for worse, a narrative in which Boris Johnson uh, commands the British people's desire to get out of out of Brexit and their whole just being sick of the process and sort of looking for an exit mm-hmm. and him offering mm-hmm. an exit. And that will become Maybe. the narrative by which we understand this. Mm-hmm. I also think this is still shows that the growing wave of national populism is alive and well. Uh, in yeah. you know in no, Western democracies true. around the world, and this was this uh, has not dissipated and yep. may still play a role in 2020 and beyond as well. Yep, I think that's right. Um, and if if that's the narrative, the Boris Johnson Corbyn thing, I think that's that'll be really interesting to me at least because I'm just not convinced Boris Johnson was that effective. I mean, mm. I th- I feel like this is more of a choice of you know. Yeah, we'll go with him because we can't go with the other guy. But um, yeah, I just I have not been that wowed by his his leadership. I mean, he doesn't seem like another David Cameron or another um, you know even Theresa May in some ways, right? right. Um, in terms of like sort of the kind of confidence you'd have in him as a governor. Governor, but but if he's prime but, minister but, for the next five years, yeah, he could end up being oh, he someone who we point to as a Thatcher like type yeah. person, and maybe he grows into it. We'll see. That's the thing. I mean, he ran very clearly on this is exactly what I'm going to do. Right. And people yeah. people said, I know what I'm going to get and this yep. is what I want. Um, and I like right. I like him better than the other most likely alternative. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you, so. you think of the U.S. parallel, I mean, it is sort of like the Trump-Clinton, right, in that sense, right? Um, Trump was, you know, I'm going to make things very simple. I'm going to talk about a few simple issues. I'm going to hammer those. I'm going to kind of give you confidence like I can do this. And Hillary Clinton's giving all these like I'm here's a bunch of different policies I'm kind of interested in. I'm a policy wonk, mm-hmm. um, you know I'm a little change maker to quote Bill Clinton right, um, and you know I mean one of them won right, right? Um, and I think you you can think about the the British election maybe in those those terms too like there are some advantages to making it simpler. Um, one of the other critiques of Labor's approach was that they were just it was too diffused there were too many things going on. What was the big thing Labor was going to do? No one was quite sure. But the concern was that you know Corbyn was too far, um, kind of capital, captive mm-hmm. of the socialist left. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see you know the future, you know how mm-hmm. much labor sort of comes back yeah. from this yeah. walloping. Right, and it opens the door for like the Tony Blairs, who's I mean mm-hmm. Tony Blair's still like four years younger than you know Jeremy Corbyn, right? Um, to kind of serve as elder statesman and say, okay, we've been here before, um, and this was kind of predictable, and when you decided to go down the Corbyn path and here. What we predicted happened, and now let's think about how do we rebuild this party but, I mean, into something that can actually govern but and win. as far if as that, predictability goal goes, though, I mean, no one was predicting that it was going to be this much of a shellacking for labor. I mean, the polls had said, like, yeah, uh, conservatives will have maybe a 28, 30-seat advantage, and they got blown out. 
Yeah, it was worse than so, people like, thought. But, I mean, it was a big miss. But having said that, like in 2015 when Corbin took over, a lot of people were saying like, this is going to be a bad disaster, right? Like this is not a person who is um, who is going to be able to bring the party together. People within his party were deeply opposed to him. And like, he'd, you know, again, I mean, in some ways he is reminiscent of kind of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. This is, he's, he's on the wing of his party, right? Mm-hmm. People are, you know, not that enthused within the establishment. There were many labor members of parliament who were not happy about this guy getting the, the leadership. Um, and they said, this is going to be a disaster. But then you sort of suck it up and say, well, let's try to make it work, right? Um, so in that sense, I mean, not surprising. Sure. But you're right. Yeah, right. The polls... Um, didn't predict just how bad this would be. It was this was on certainly the high end of what they thought was was possible. And if if we're correctly tracking this rise of sort of national populism, there may be less and less of a space for the Bill Clintons and Tony Blairs of their parties mm-hmm. to offer sort of a um, neoliberalism yep. um, yep. V- uh, view of of, yep. of of the Progressive Party in their in their states. We may see more Jeremy Corbyns and Bernie Sanders, yeah. and yeah. Uh, at least in the short run, and the yeah. and, and on the left right. and the right. Yep. Right, yeah. so we have these choices between your sort of yeah. quasi-socialists and these populist nationalists. Yeah, well, I mean, the quasi-socialists are not immune to populism themselves. No, no Bernie not, Sanders no. is both socialist and populist. Yeah, that's true. and Corbyn too. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, I can almost feel um, Burl Ives. I can almost wow. feel. Are you going to sing? Uh, wow. uh, a little Vince Guaraldi. Um, it's it's Christmas time. <laughs> I can almost feel Burl Ives is also a very weird sentence. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not my best transition. I love Burl um, Ives, though. So. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. It's it's one of the people I – if you said imagine you had Christmas music, that's what I picture. Yeah. Right? I can I can picture sitting by a fire with my kids playing with a <laughs> – Playing with some superheroes that Tommy has acquired. Can I tell you what got Tommy for Christmas? He might listen to this. Yeah, what if he listens to this podcast? He would on. only listen to Tommy it if fast I played it for Hit the fast-forward button yeah, Tommy, uh, don't twice. Listen. Okay, Chris, tell us. <laughs> All right, you good? Are we yeah. good? All right. I'm so excited. Um, he has asked for um, the gloves that the like that make your hands look like the Hulk's fists. Uh-huh. And when you <laughs> nice. smash, they make, like, sound effects. Uh-huh. And also, like, a Captain, like, um, or Black Panther, like, mask and gloves with claws. Um, so we're going to be doing a lot of superhero play around the house. Now, are those actually made of vibranium or? Uh, that was extra. <laughs> okay. And, and you didn't spring for that? We did not spring for the vibranium. Okay. As it, it's very exploitative. Um, you know, it's it's all mined in Wakanda. Sure. Right. And I, you know. It's, so you know he's going to go around the house like smashing things because it makes extra cool sounds. So we're going to have oh, to yeah. set some Put limits some on exactly on what the Hulk <laughs> is allowed to smash. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think so. that's. I don't know if that really fits with the ethos of the Hulk being limited. Yeah, because like, when Hulk is Hulk, he's like I was gonna say, out of like, control. I don't know well, much about the Marvel what, Universe, but I do know this. Well, like, depends yeah. on which Hulk you go with. Yeah, if, you, okay. if you go with like Brainy Hulk, then it's okay. like the best of Bruce Banner and of Hulk. And, uh, like, that's, okay. I always right. think of Tommy Moore as a little uh, Mark Ruffalo y. He's, so. he's, he's got a little Ruffalo in him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Does he get that from your side? That's definitely Stacey. Yeah. She's got the Ruffalo. Yeah. All right. With that in mind, I want to talk to you guys about some Christmas recommendations. I know our listeners are late Christmas shoppers. They don't get started to that week yep. before Christmas. They've got two-day shipping um, with Amazon. They're excited listeners of Election Shock yep. Therapy. If they were going to put one um, political or political-adjacent book um, on their Christmas list or put it under the tree for someone in their lives, what's a book that you might recommend that they should take a look at? Something that might help them understand some facet of, of world of world affairs. Well, if you actually want to have some prayer of them, the average person reading this book. Oh, snap. Um, I'm going to down go, from your ivory tower here, Brian. I'm going to go classic here. <laughs> and not going to go classic, but I'm going to go like readable and short. Um, and I'm going with The Prince, right? Because, I mean, Machiavelli's mm. Prince just feels relevant all over again. Um, being c- deeply cynical about human nature, about what people are up to, um, you anything that's out there – um, you know, religion, virtue, character, all those things are just tools for the powerful to use um, in manipulating those with less power. Um, and it's under 100 pages. Um, what's I, not to like? I have two questions for you. One serious, one not. Here's a serious one. Would you, is there a particular translation of The Prince that you might recommend? I go with Harvey Mansfield's. I think it's very well done. Oh, I, yeah. So, that, okay. yeah. I but, also think it's less readable and less accessible. Okay, you have a better so, one? I mean, All right. so I assigned that one to my students because I think okay. it's probably the most literal translation yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That, um, that is still readable. Sure. But it, it, 
it's less readable than some. So if okay. you want something that flows a little bit better, um, that's easier read, that puts things in, in starker terms, mm-hmm. I would recommend um, the uh, the Cambridge edition. And I'm blanking on it. I love that we have two recommendations. So I was going to say, yeah, if, if at home you are playing election shock <laughs> therapy <laughs> bingo, you can put a mark on the debating translations of Machiavelli Square if you yeah, have yeah, Which isn't a square we mark very yeah, often. Know that show, mm-hmm. so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think next time we teach this class, I'm, I'm actually going to switch from yeah. the Harvey Mansfield translation yeah. to the, the Cambridge edition. But if you like more contemporary, I've, I've mentioned this on this podcast before, um, Patrick Janine's Why Liberalism Failed is also very interesting, and it gets at the kind of current crisis. And it's, yeah, good read. Okay. All right. Well, as a, a counterweight to Machiavelli's The Prince, uh, I'm going to recommend C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Ooh. Um, also a very short read. If you've read anything uh, by C.S. Lewis, any of his nonfiction, you know he's uh, very, very readable um, yep. and even an entertaining read. Yep. Um, it, it's a short it's a short essay. Um, and basically in it, he's talking about the importance of having a um, understanding that we do have an objective moral reality um, mm-hmm. and that our attempts to try to abandon that or reject that um, ultimately um, yield, um, pe- and this is maybe a point of connection, yield a a class uh, of elite intellectuals that mm-hmm. actually just exercise power over the us. Mm-hmm. And these in- elite intellectuals um, ultimately themselves are not in they're not in control of themselves. They are just um, controlled by their own appetites and their own desires. And so ultimately mm-hmm. our attempts to conquer nature um, ultimately lead to nature conquering us and man, mm-hmm. humankind mm-hmm. being abolished. So, And if you want the nice um, sort of fictional corollary to this, um, read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Um, and if you don't want to read the first two books and you just want to read the companion <laughs> to The Abolition of Man, I mean, they're all kind of standalone. Um, you could read That Hideous Strength, which is basically The Abolition of Man in fiction form. So, Which is also a very confusing book. Stand- um, uh, but, but it's it's good. But, it's confusing, but it's good. So. But uh, I would say Abolition of Man is easier uh, to yes, read by yes. a, a lot. If um, you had debating the readability of C.S. Lewis, <laughs> that hideous strength. <laughs> yes, you can mark that square as well. Wow, I Sam, love your can I uh, can I foist upon you a strained poli sci pun? Oh, if you can, please do. <laughs> Both of these guys recommended and debated about Machiavelli's The Prince. Isn't it a shame that Prince never recorded an album called The Machiavelli? That, oh, that, that would be what a awesome. wasted opportunity. Oh, yeah. wow. I want that to be a thing now. Why? Why didn't he? Wow. That's, oh, I feel yeah. like we should take a moment of silence for that missed yeah, opportunity. That's but, <laughs> that'd be awkward on there. And now I want someone to – okay, Annie Berglund, if you're listening to this, please Photoshop Prince <laughs> onto a cover of Machiavelli's The Prince. <laughs> Yeah, and I will put that on my door. I just, actually, I want an album cover right for the, the Machiavelli by Prince, and it, or it could be by the symbol too. Like, yeah, when sure. he was the symbol, absolutely, yeah. I'm totally yeah. fine. I with can that actually too. picture yeah. the cover; it's beautiful. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. great. It's, it's, it's yes. good work. It maybe came out at that time period when CDs came in that long <laughs> case, you know, yeah, unnecessarily long case. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Good. There you we know, go. Moving away from vinyl has really killed album cover art. Yeah, it's just a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Do you All want right. me to give a recommendation? Yes, I would. I am oh, deeply yes. outgunned when it comes to talking about uh, political books uh-huh. um, because I don't really read political books. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a book that came out in this century. Oh, good. Uh, actually, came out this year, mm. um, and it's not ex- it's adjacent to politics. Okay. Um, and it's about power and the media. It's a it's a very dark story, but it's a phenomenal read. And that is uh, Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill mm. is great. Mm. It's a, if it's a great. It's like a spy novel um, mixed with all the president's men or something Ooh. like like because you get like the journalism yeah. Yeah, stuff, yeah. but it's it, it yeah uh, it's really phenomenal. And again, nice. it's it's politically adjacent because there's some there. It's mm-hmm. about how. Media companies catch and kill stories, right? How they buy right. stories to to bury them, yep. um, and it's so it's about the Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein and the Me Too movement. But there's other, I mean, there's some Trump stuff in there as well. Mm-hmm. And it's really, mm-hmm. it's a great read. Um, I actually read the audiobook version, which which Pharaoh reads himself, and that's um, that's a treat in and of itself. So if you're an audiobook listener, the uh, the audiobook of Catch and Kill is pretty good. Thanks, All right. that was great. That's that's way better than I was going to recommend. Ooh. So I was going to keep with the sort of um, 20th century contemporary – well, not Machiavelli, I suppose. <laughs> Harvey Mansfield. Yeah, Harvey uh, Mansfield is. But um, 
and and uh, and C.S. Lewis. But I was going to recommend a contemporary of C.S. Lewis's, and I was going to recommend Reinhold Niebuhr. Ooh. And if you want mm. to understand. Um, as a Christian yeah, and yeah. as a thinker about the current predicament that we're in, but you want to step back from it and not just fall mm-hmm. into fall prey to the punditry of the day to day. The best entry point into the Reinhold Niebuhr Uber. Reinhold Niebuhr was this uh, German emigre who was a pastor in Detroit for a number of years and then a professor um, of theology at Union Theological Seminary and mm-hmm. was. Um, Came from the um, from the political left, but also was a big critic of of communism yep. and um, a staunch defender of the United States during the Cold War and uh, a real defender of a Christian basis for the use of power mm-hmm. um, to achieve uh, uh, to achieve American ends during the Cold War. But if you want to understand sort of his critique of the foibles of 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 sin in a modern American political system, read the irony of American history. Yeah. And I think that that um, really ca- encapsulates a critique that all Christians ought to consider mm-hmm. um, as we sort of stumble blithely sometimes into supporting one side or the other of a political process. Uh, Niebuhr will pull us all up short. And I yeah. think that's worth considering. Actually, if you read – I can't comment on Sam's because I haven't read that one. But if you read The Abolition of Man, The Prince, and The Irony of American History, um, that would be a, a pretty good trio to help you think about – our human situation, and together it's only about you know four hundred pages. Yeah, what a happy so, Christmas wow. reading! <laughs> yeah, what I, a joyous Christmas! I you apologize. You will for have what you're about to embark upon. <laughs> All right. Well, it, you know, we, we don't always these are the time. We didn't make the times. We're the just times trying to made respond us. Um, and help people through them. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not our I, fault. <laughs> you merely we you all merely adopted the darkness. We were born into it. Um, all right, let's. Uh, oh Batman quote there is wow. trying to adopt. All right. Anyway, um, can I can I give my uh, my Christmas wish though? I know we weren't doing this oh, for everybody, but I do. Have I would. A Christmas lo- we, wish. we need some. We need oh. some Christmas warmth. And, and this, this Christmas wish, I guarantee you, comes not just from me, but from uh, but from all the EST listeners, uh, Kelsey Williams included. Um, who I'm, Hi, Kelsey. I'm, I'm sure is still listening. Um, and that is for for 2020, I want more regular EST episodes. You guys have done yeah. like once a month. We got we have primaries coming up. We have we are going to have to kick it in game the high year. Yeah, yeah we have an game. election this year. This so, is this is yep. your year, right? Yep. Yeah, we also and we also have a correspondent have a in the field in South Carolina, our own Mitchell Crum, uh, regular on this podcast previously. Um, we need to get Mitchell on and via phone to tell us what is actually happening on the ground in South Carolina. What he's seeing, what he's hearing. Um, we'll yeah. sit down with Lindsey. What Graham. are the people saying at the Waffle House? That's what I want to know. That's right. And that's going to force Mitchell to go to the Waffle House, which I'm trying. And to then send to us do. some waffles. I'd um, like to see. Wait, yeah, the waffles, waffles are pretty. Good. He had a problem with Waffle House. He's been reluctant to follow my recommendation to go to Waffle House. So. Well, that's he, just that's just a massive oversight on his part. Mitch, know, if you're listening to this, he's you listening. need to go try the Waffle House. He needs to go to yeah. Waffle House. It's Preferably late at night because oh, yeah. you hear such fun things. Yeah. It's so amazing. It's such a cultural experience. Yeah. Just if like, you're in the South, you need to go to the Waffle House. And the waffles are life. quite good. Yeah. The hash browns are great. Um, okay, if you <laughs> had Andy Bramson impromptu Waffle House review, put the I think that's a bingo at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think this so. episode is brought to you by Waffle House. <laughs> Waffle House for all of your breakfast needs. Um, get one more thing, guys. I'm going to steal yet one more thing from um, our beloved colleagues over at Bookish at Bethel. All right, we, we recommended three kind of uh, middle brow books. Machiavelli's even more than middle brow. Machiavelli's highbrow. Okay, but. Um, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Depends on how you think about it. But, yes. but we're uh, if you're reading the Mansfield version, it's highbrow. Sure. All right. Sure. Yeah. But uh, what's something that's on your nightstand? This is not necessarily something you're recommending to other people, but what's something you're reading right now? Or looking forward to reading at the break. Because right now we're all reading term papers. I can go first on this one. So uh, I'm I'm in between books. I just finished uh, for my my daughter is in seventh grade and was uh, in class. They were reading The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. So I reread The Outsiders oh, yeah. the other morning, um, which I never read as a kid. But I love that book. I'm not breaking any news. It's like a 40, 50 year old book, but like, okay. so, and I'm, I think my next read is going to be Little Women because I want to see the Greta Gerwig oh, movie. Yeah. So I want to reread, I haven't reread, I haven't read Little Women since college. So I think that, that might be my, when I finish yeah. grading, that might be my I don't think I've read. ever actually read that book. It's I've, great. I've watched movie versions, multiple yeah. movie versions, but I've, I don't think I've actually read the book. So, um, cool. this will tell you something about the kind of nerd I am, but, um, I am currently reading a, um, 
Church History Account by one Alexander Schmemann, The Historical Road of Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, Schmemann's kind of an interesting um, Orthodox thinker. But my next up in my queue is to go back to my um, previously mentioned on this podcast kick um, in the Middle Ages um, fiction and read Sharon K. Penman's um, more of her work. So oh. I've got several of her books up, I think. Trying to think which one is up next. Here Be Dragons, I think, is the, the one I've got. I know some up, folks so. who've, who've uh, read so, through her stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I've read a number of them, but I haven't read these ones. So, I mean, I've got, I've, I checked these out from the library. I was getting ready for getting through those aforementioned term papers and then um, turning to some fun, lighter, <laughs> Sharon other Pen- people's problems from previous years. Sharon ours. Penman was my fifth grade teacher, but I think it's a different person. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Although she's the right age to have been your third grade teacher. But, yeah. Yeah. So I think the next thing that's up on my list is I try to keep some sort of Tolkien in the rotation uh, that's or something always related a good to idea. Tolkien. So always a good idea. I've worked through his letters. If you had Tolkien in the rotation. <laughs> yes. I worked through his letters earlier. I worked through his letters <laughs> and um, a biography um, yep. and um, sort of a literary criticism of him. And so I kind of want to look at um, some of the other stuff he's written, nonfiction, so like Monsters mm. and Critics and some of the yeah. other essays he wrote. Mm. So I think that's that's on my Christmas list. We'll All right. Nice. All right. Cool. If you're listening, Courtney. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna um, I'm gonna say this um, genuinely, but also I'm gonna look right at uh, Sam when I say this because I um, I'm already excited. <laughs> uh, I, I I as chair I have my chair release in January, so I'm not teaching. Uh, in January, and it's it's time. I'm gonna try and read Infinite Jest. Yes. Oh. Are we wow, gonna do a really? massive Infinite Jest pod? If if I can burn through it in January, I will reread it in January too. I will. Um, oh. We will do an Infinite Jest pod. <laughs> yes. You guys in? No. It's only like 1,200 pages and about. I don't know, a couple hundred pages of footnotes. See, it's... The problem with this, Sam, is that when when you enthusiastically described it in that library talk you gave some time back, oh. like, that. Which no, that was, like the, the per- that was a different book okay, by him. That was a different book. Okay, yeah, that's that true. Was, that, that was the pale, pale king. king. Sure, fair enough. <laughs> yep. But my sense is that their their virtues oh. are similar oh, in your it's mind. So good. And yeah. I want to give Chris a hug right now, but I'm gonna wait till after the show. Yeah, it would be bad for the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Sam was well, trying to high five Chris here. In the well, studio. before uh, Sam gives me a hug, you've been listening to Election Shock <laughs> Therapy at Bethel. Have a merry Christmas and blessed season. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'll be back in your feed probably in 2020. But until that point, um, blessings from all of us and go Royals.